0: In Matthew 18, and we are thrilled that you're here tonight. We are thankful for your presence. As we study today, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and searches for that one that is lost. And if he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders. Combining a little bit, Luke 15 with Matthew 18, but he takes it back, he rejoices, and the text says, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, a repeat, repeating that text brings out, emphasizes the context in which this statement in Matthew 18 appears. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, comes right after that instruction. It's important to see what it comes after. It's important to see what it comes before. But the text says, in verse 15, if your brother sins. Now, some of your translations have against you and there is debate if that is in the original text I just want you to know the difference there if your brother sins or if he sins against you go and show him his fault in private if he listens to you you have won your brother but if he does not listen to you Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact shall be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my midst, in my name there I am in their midst. Now, outside of a statement in Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Outside of that statement, this is without parallel in the Gospels. Matthew uses the word church twice In 1618 of his gospel and here in 1817. 1618 would be more of what we describe as the universal church. All of God's people. I will build my church. While this passage deals with a specific local congregation. And the text tells us what we are to do. If our brother sins, now the reason that against you is a matter of debate because that's pretty important in context. Is this just dealing with something that he has done against me privately or could he also refer To the fact that he has sinned in some way. That is not well known to others. It may not be a personal offense. It may not be a personal wrongdoing against me. But but he has sinned in some way. That he needs this. If your brother sins. There are several things he says. The first He says. I would like to blame that on somebody else. Go. To him. In private. Go to him. In private. I must take full responsibility for that. If your brother sins. Go. And show him his fault in private. God's goal is that there be a resolution of this in as quiet and private way as possible. You know of his sin. You know something that others do not go and show him his fault in private now the text says the text actually uses the word reprove him or rebuke him it is a word also used in the Septuagint of Leviticus 19 verses 17 and 18. Now, I also want you to pay attention to the context of Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 verse 18 has a very famous statement that everyone here knows. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor As yourself, I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But right before that, what does the text say? In the context of calling on us to love our neighbor, to love our brother. He says in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall surely reprove your neighbor. He shall not incur but shall not incur sin because of him. Apparently there's no inconsistency between reproving him and loving him in Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. But the same word that was used there in that text is used in, in this, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is used here in this text. If your brother sends you, go and reprove him. This is a word used, for example, of John reproving Herod and telling him that he should not have his wife. It is a word that is a strong word, but you go and you do this in private. And the hope is that your brother hears this, he listens to you, and you have won your brother. Now the word won can be used of a material gain. It is the word used when the Bible tells us what shall it a man if he has gained the whole world and lost his own soul. It can't material profit or material gain, but it is also used in the context of looking for souls. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, the Bible says that Paul became all things to all men that he might by all means win some. Same word used here. The idea is that the brother has listened, the brother has heard what you said, the brother has repeated the wrong. Now it is assumed in this specific case that the brother who is making the rebuke is right. He is right and it is assumed in this context... That when this brother listens and you've won him, that there is forgiveness. And in the next section, right after, he tells us to go and speak to your brother in private. He tells us a beautiful parable on a subject of forgiveness. What comes before this account, what comes after this account, helps us to understand this account. Let him who converts a sinner from the error of his way know that he has saved a soul from death and he has covered a multitude of sins. James 5. Verses 19 and 20. A world of good is done in many cases that are not observed, that are not seen widely by someone who's just willing to do this. They go, they speak to their brother, the brother is sincere enough to listen to this and to repent. And the brother who originally spoke to him forgives. But what if he doesn't listen? If he does not listen and notice the contrast in verse 15 if he listens to you In verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two more. Take one or two more with you, so by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now, what I have on the board with the passages from Numbers and Deuteronomy are places where you see in the Old Testament... That a person was not condemned on the evidence of one witness alone. That there had to be multiple witnesses to a particular event. And it says, if he doesn't listen, take one or two more. Now, the assumption is that these people are Christians. Because it's 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 1 through 8 tells us why in the world do we have to go before an unbelieving world to let them solve our problems? Take one or two more. It doesn't say that they are coached, are prepared for everything that's going to transpire. It may be that they simply come and they observe. What is going to happen? As they come and they observe this conversation, apparently they too are convinced the brother has not sinned and not done right. And so as a result of this, they are also joining in the persuasion for him to change, for him to listen, for him to surrender to God. Now obviously, though it is not stated, if he listens, at this point that's the end of the matter. But that possibility is not stated. It's already been stated in verse 15. But if he doesn't listen a third thing is done. Tell it to the church and if he refuses to listen to the church let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector we do see in the New Testament that when early churches met in their assembly Sometimes they dealt with such matters. In 1 Corinthians 5, in verses 4 and 5, about the man who had committed adultery, the Bible says, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, With the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So it talks about, 1 Corinthians 5, talks about these things being done when they assembled together. And the text tells us that apparently the whole church is joining in the appeal to try to get this brother to be right our goal is not to be is not destruction but salvation our goal is so that one of these little ones do not perish that's the point of matthew 18 verse 14 and and this is what the goal of the congregation in being involved in trying to woo this man and persuade him. Don't follow this destructive course. Don't follow this way. But if he refuses to listen to them, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now I recognize that statement may come as a surprise in all the Gospels, but in Matthew's Gospel in particular. Because sometimes Gentiles exercise faith that Jews didn't have. You see that in Matthew 8. With the centurion in verses 5 through 13. Sometimes Gentiles exercise great faith. The Syrophoenician, a woman in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, she has faith that sometimes the apostles themselves lacked. Gentiles are generally portrayed favorably in such circumstances and tax collectors are generally portrayed favorably in Matthew. You have Matthew, a tax collector, who left everything to follow Jesus. And in Matthew 21, verse 31, Jesus is going to say the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. But This word for Gentiles and tax collectors is used a lot like Matthew 5, verses 46 and 47. Where Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren, brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He's not holding Gentiles and tax collectors up as examples to be followed there. He is stating, you're not doing any more than these that are outside of fellowship with God. In Matthew 6, 7, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. In these cases, Gentiles are not held up as positive examples. Gentiles are as negative examples. I would say those examples are the background for how Jesus uses the term here. He is not telling us in this passage that we need to eat and drink with them. As we read in Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, he's not saying that at all in this context. In this context, he is saying much along the line of 1 Corinthians 5 9, with such a one not to <coughs> We can't act like everything is fine. And we try to use our influence individually and collectively to bring them back to God. Because our God who gave this instruction loves that person more than we do. Jesus who died for Him Loves him more than we do. And God is saying. And Christ is saying. That this is the best way to win them back. To bring back the lost sinners. years ago I in a meeting he the first man. a person comes forward whoever was at front with me whether it be an elder or a preacher or both they quickly ran there and there were all kinds of tears being shed I knew there had to be some story behind these events. But the person was young. And yet, they had already been through this procedure. One talked to them. 2 three pre-talked to them. And the whole congregation talked to them. And after that, the whole congregation also including some of their family and we're sorry but we can't act Nothing more and that lost child was coming back I've been privileged to witness that a few times. There are cases where this is worked exactly as God instructed. It is not done if it is done properly, out of malice or anger, but in an effort to win the person Now, I would say, when we started this scenario, in Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sinned, we understand that there are some things that we might perceive as we didn't like it, wasn't friendly in that circumstance, but... In those cases I think there is an application of Proverbs 19:11 It is a man's glory to overlook a transgression. But in a case where there is real sin, real wrong that affects one's relationship with God He says do this. And he says this out of a desire that not one of these people perish. One writer says many churches avoid this problem by simply disobeying Jesus and making no attempt to follow these principles. But we don't want to be like that. We're not dealing with every passage that deals with the subject. We are dealing with this. And we want to make a few points on these last couple of verses. In Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth... Shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I hope some of you remember our discussion on Matthew 16, verse 19, a couple of months ago. Where Jesus says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The same... Verbs and the same verb tenses are used there in that passage as are used here in Matthew 18 and verse 18. Now is this passage saying that whenever a church engages in disciplinary action that God is obligated to honor this and to uh, state this is right? No. That is not. That is looking in the wrong direction. Uh, That is not what's said. And we find cases in the New Testament, or at least one case in the New Testament, where they were practicing this in the wrong way. In 3 John verses 9 and 10, Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence, he not only did not receive the apostles, but he cast out those who would, and he, he cast them out. Of the local congregation. The New Testament warns us that some churches didn't exercise this properly. But I'll tell you what it is saying it tells us when we do this in a proper way and in a proper spirit, when we follow God's instruction and God's scripture, this isn't simply a human process, this is a reflection. This is a reflection of God's will, that the things that you're doing, when you go to this brother and speak to him, and then you take one or two more, and, and then you tell it to the whole church. When you're doing this, this is not simply the decision of this congregation. This, this, this congregation is carrying out the things that God has already laid down. And he says, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything, they may ask and it shall be done for them by my Father who's in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now sometimes this passage is quoted to say that if if two or three of us show up, the Lord is with us. And I don't deny that. I don't mean to deny that. But this context is pretty specific. Your brother says this you go and tell him his fault people enjoy doing that. They take one or two more. What is it why being one of the people selected to be a part of it. Are usually people raising their hands and say, pick me, pick me? Or are people hiding in the background, not wanting to be involved? But I want to tell you, with those two or three. pleading with Him to turn from His sin, to repent of His wrong, to be right with God, when they do that, Jesus is in their midst. It may apply to assembling generally, but it applies to this situation specifically, that the Lord is with us. When we go according to His will, when we go with the right motives, the Lord is in our midst. May we always listen to Him. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God we look at your word and we know that you love us and we know that you want us to be saved and we pray Lord that we have the courage to obey, to do what you've said, to listen to your voice, to surrender to your will. Help us, O oh Lord, to do your will. For we know your methods of winning the lost sinner are always wiser than ours. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you seek us. We thank you that you forgive us. May all of that come into our minds when we face such circumstances how great you are in jesus we pray amen it is not the will ...of your Father who is in heaven... ...that one of these little ones perish. And it's not the will... ...of our Father... ...that one person... ...in this assembly... ...perish. In the New Testament... ...when people heard about... ...Jesus being preached... ...the Bible tells us... ...when they heard about that... ...they... uh, ...repented of their... ...sin... And they were baptized for a mission. And we stand ready to do that. To try to become Christians the same way they did. We're glad to help you as we stand and see. it. Number 132, Ancient Words.